This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your great idea into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Studies show that people, especially young people, are having less sex than past generations did. And while many may celebrate this decline as a good thing, the reasons behind the drop in sex may not all be so positive. A decline in physical intimacy may potentially speak to a decline in emotional intimacy and a struggle modern folks are having with connecting with each other. My guest explores this decline in sexual frequency as a way into these larger cultural and relational questions in her long-form cover story for this month's Atlantic Magazine. Magazine. Her name is Kate Julian. Today we discuss her piece entitled The Sex Recession on why people are counterintuitively having less sex in a time when sex is less taboo and more accessible than ever before. We begin our conversation highlighting the statistics that indicate young Americans are having less sex and whether this decline holds true for other countries and affects married people as well as singles. Kate then delves into the idea that the reasons for why young people are having less sex may suggest deeper issues in how people are relating or not relating to each other. These reasons include the way dating apps are shaping in-person interactions, prevalence of porn, and an increase in anxiety and depression amongst young people. We end our conversation by raising the question of why people continue to perpetuate relational patterns that don't seem to be making them happy. This is a fascinating discussion. I know some of you listen to the podcast with your kids. Due to the mature nature of the show, I'd have them skip this one. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash sexrecession. Kate joins me now via clearcast.io. Hey, Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you recently published an article in The Atlantic that's gone viral. Everyone's talking about it. And it's about how there's a sex recession going on in America right now. People are having less sex. So start off, where, what are the data points that tell us that people, particularly young people, are having less sex nowadays? So my jumping off point for this piece is a series of research done by Jean Twenge, who's a psychologist at San Diego State. She published over the past few years a series of four articles in the Archives of Sexual Behavior about the way people's sex lives were changing. The part of this that struck me as most counterintuitive was her finding that sexual frequency had declined among adults from something like 62 times a year on average to 54 times a year on average between the late 90s and 2014. Now, for a given person, that's not a huge drop. You might not even notice it. That Both numbers are about once a week. But across the whole country, it seems to me, or it seemed to me, I should say, really counterintuitive that in the age of all of these things that we think of as, as enhancing sex, that people would be having less of it. So from there, I dug into it and started to look at the young people part of this more specifically and, and found some other surprising numbers. I can go into those. People, you know, are launching their sex lives later. They are more likely, according to Twenge's research, to be as abstinent or celibate in their 20s, two and a half times more likely compared to Gen X or baby boomers. They're also on track. Uh, people in their 20s are on track to have fewer lifetime sexual partners than those other two generations. 
And it's not just sex. It's like also things just like that lead up to sex, like making out, kissing, like that's also decreasing as well, right? That's what, that is what it's, what seems to be happening. Now, I do want to be really clear here about two things. The first is I'm, I'm using sex as a way into the sort of larger question of relationships and intimacy. So where you're going with this is absolutely, you know, speaking to the heart of what I'm curious about here. The problem is we don't have a lot of data on things like holding hands and kissing and the like, right? This is not something that studies have really looked at on a big, on a large scale, most research on adolescents looks at specific outcomes. You know, did they get pregnant? Do they have a disease? That type of thing. Um, there's much less asking about sort of more qualitative experiences of relationship and connection to other people. I did find it striking, though, that when I went sort of trying to dig into anything that we could use sort of as a baseline, there's one major study of adolescents in the mid-90s called Ad Health that found that of 17-year-old girls and boys, 66% of boys and 74% of women or girls had said they had had what they called a special romantic relationship. And then another big survey in 2014 found that, that had gone down to 46%. And in fact, the later survey used an even broader definition they included like hooking up or something like that so it seems like 70 you know 74 percent to 46 percent in 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 really just 20 years is kind of an amazing change yeah so like the high school crush or dating thing that's not happening as much it it seems like it there is some research that looks at the question of dating and then this turns into this thing about like do people say dating anymore Is, is that word dated so to speak but but it, it it does sort of track with other things we've seen, other research by the same scholar, Jean Twenge, that was published in a book last year called iGen, found that over the last 10 years, there's been a pretty marked decline in a lot of things we think of as going with adolescence. So things that might actually be connected to to having flirtation or romance or whatever you want to call it with, with another person, uh, getting your driver's license, going out of the house without your parents. These things have dropped off quite a bit. Now, is this a, just an American? American phenomenon, or is this happening in other countries as well? This is what I found most fascinating when I started to look into all of this. No, most countries, I should say, do not study their citizens' sex lives, but the countries that do have serious ongoing surveys that, that speak to this stuff, most of which tend to be wealthy countries, are finding similar, similar trends. So in Japan in Australia, in the UK, in the Netherlands, and in the Finland, and, and in Finland, I should say, similar trends are being noted. And in Japan, I mean, it's really stark. I mean, I think for the past decade or so, we've been seeing articles about, I don't know, these shut-ins. That they, I don't know what they call them, vegetable leaders or herb eaters or whatever. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is such an interesting term. In Japan, for the past, I think, 15 years or so, there's been this recognition of a category of young men who are just totally uninterested in romantic experiences. They call them, the sort of direct translation is herbivore men or grass-eating men. That's what they're known as there. And the question then sort of becomes, well, what led this generation, you know, what, what led this generation to kind of turn away from interest in, in romance and marriage? And it seems that there, you know, the root cause of it probably is really an economic one. That This coincided with really, you know, the, the, the Japanese economy sinking into the doldrums and the kind of dating culture there for the second half of the 20th century was really focused on meeting people in the workplace. That was the standard, normal, socially acceptable way to meet somebody. And when young men and young women were no longer, you know, company men and women anymore, 
people didn't actually know how to go about it. And moreover, what sort of dating culture did exist was pretty expensive to participate in. And if you're a young man without a job, it was really hard to, to, to go there. And so digital entertainment and staying at home became pretty quickly really appealing. And then various, you know, products and industries, porn and not porn related sort of sprung up to, to indulge that tendency. And is this happening across, like, is it, it's, imagine single people are having less sex, but are married people, like married young people having less sex too? Or is this predominantly a, a singles problem? Well, there are two parts to that. I mean, the, the short answer is one big cause of what we're seeing is that fewer people who are under 35 are living with a spouse or a partner. And for all that people like to joke about married people not having sex anymore, if you live with a sexual partner, you are just going to have more sex over the course of the year than somebody who doesn't. You know, a third of of people under 35 are living, adults under 35, I should say, are living with a parent. That's, you know, higher than it's been in a very long time. And it's actually more common than any other living arrangement. So obviously, if you're not living with a partner, more so if you're living with your parents, this is going to have an effect on your sex life. But Twenge's research does suggest that even people who are in relationships are having sex um, less across most generational groups. And then that sort of raises a question of sort of what may be going on to make even sort of long-term couples compared to their predecessors be physically intimate less. So, you know, a lot of parents, ministers, educators will probably see this decline in young people hooking up, having sex. A good thing because, you know, there's a decrease in teen pregnancy rates, which is, you know, a good thing. People have been, we've been working on that since, you know, the fifties, basically STDs are down. But as you said, like this, this whole idea of people having less sex, it, it speaks to a larger issue of just about how humans are relating today. And maybe people having less sex can indicate that something below, you know, that is going on that's causing people to have less sex. What's going on there, you think? Yeah. So I actually want to pause and just linger on the first part of what you said, which is key. And I don't want that to be lost in all of this. The fact that the teenage pregnancy rate is a third of what it was, a third of what it was in the early 90s is a remarkable and good development. I mean, that's terrific. And there are other parts of this that are really good as well, some of which I talk about in the piece and some of which I don't. More people now are likely than in the past to say that their first sexual experience, whenever it happened, was wanted and welcome. That is terrific. So there really, I, you know, I don't see that there's any rush. You know, it's, not, it's not that I'm decrying or the, the, the sort of delay of teenagers having sex or young adults having sex. But what I am curious about is what's causing this. If the thing that we're causing this to happen was essentially, for lack of a better word, a positive thing, then I would be, you know, applauding it, right? If people are doing this because they feel more comfortable saying no because they have other occupations that are keeping them happy and fulfilled and allowing them to connect to people in other ways. Like that would be a terrific thing. And for some people, those things are probably true. I've talked to some people who, who, you know, were not in sexual relationships and were not interested in their twenties in romantic relationships because they were busy with work and school and had really wonderful, rich lives. What I'm more concerned about is the sort of, large number of people I talked to who felt very stuck and frustrated and like they didn't know how to meet somebody and they were really having trouble making connections, not just sexual connections, but really I would say sort of relationship connections more broadly, not just physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy. Well, you mentioned one thing there that one reason people are putting off, young people are putting off sexual relationships is that they've 
invested more into their professional and academic success over not just sex, but just relationships. Um, why is that? Why are young people today more focused on that you know, than say maybe their parents or grandparents? Well, so, you know, all of these generalizations are obviously tricky, but I do think people now in their 20s have a lot of sort of economic uncertainty that they're having to grapple with, which may make this seem like less of an immediate priority. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people I spoke to honestly were so sober and responsible and were like, I have to get my education taken care of. You know, I, I'm still living at home. I, you know, if I can't even figure out how to sort of pay for my own apartment, I shouldn't even be worrying about this next step. There was a notion that things need to happen in a certain order. Part of the problem, though, is I think that order is a little bit outdated. That is, people are sort of holding themselves to the standards of their parents' generation, even though some of the jobs and other things that may have supported their parents' ability to connect and get married in their 20s just aren't really there. And people are really having to patch together multiple jobs and sort of function in the gig economy and all that, all that stuff. So yeah, people feel like they have to have a job and a house and all that before they get married. It seems like it. I mean, we've seen for a while that as marriage rates were declining and also as people were delaying marriage, that marriage seemed like it was sort of, a, some scholars have described it as a capstone, like something you, you looked to when everything else in your life was together. And I wonder if something similar is happening with romantic relationships general, like generally, like I shouldn't even be worrying about that until I see myself being on a track where I would be looking for my lifetime partner. So a lot of young people are prioritizing work and study over relationships, romantic relationships. But at the same time, you cite a study in your article that you know, the majority of students or young people wish they had more opportunities to find a long-term boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, and like college is like the best time to do that because you're just with a bunch of peers your age and that's not happening. So what's going on? Are, are young people just sort of caught between two contradictory desires, that desire to get ahead, but also start a relationship? I think so. I think so. And I think that there's a um, notion with sort of hookup culture that you kind of have to choose between casual sex and no sex. And I think that that has sort of left a fairly large group of people out in the hole, sort of in the cold, so to speak. Some of the sort of more recent research on so-called hookup culture really has shown that a lot of the way that we talk about it and think about it isn't really quite right. So, you know, it's not something that most people are engaging in with wild abandon. It's something that maybe sort of, you know, 20, 25% of people are really active participants in and other people may be sitting it out altogether. And I think, you know, I talked to people who felt that on campus they, they, they hadn't really known how to go about, you know, finding something outside of hookup culture. And I think this sort of bridges to another interesting point about dating apps for people who are in their 20s, which is to say that apps have become really, really sort of ubiquitous over a pretty short period of time. I mean, we've had these things for only 10 years or so. And by some measures, they've become the most common way of meeting people. And on the one hand, you know, that clearly... That that very marker suggests that they are working for a lot of people, right? But it's pretty clear to me from looking at the data that they're really not working for a lot of other people. And what I heard in my interviews with young people was this sort of refrain that like, that's the accepted way to find somebody now. And yet it's not really working very well for me for, for a variety of reasons. And so what do I do? Like, I don't know how to meet somebody outside the apps. Well, let's talk, let's dig into that a little deeper because yeah, the dating apps and even like dating websites is supposed to make dating more efficient, right? You go to a place where you know everyone is there looking for a romantic partner. But as you, you, the research suggests that 
people actually, they're not that effective at fighting, finding a romantic partner through dating apps. So tell us, the, walk us through the data. So, so, so again, there, you know, there is a, there's a positive side here, like people who, according to one set of research I looked at, people who meet through an app who are sort of interested in a long-term relationship are more likely to get married more quickly than people who meet other ways. So for people who really sort of are doing this effectively, it, it obviously can be super efficient. The problem is that many people are spending just a kind of unfathomable amount of time on these things. The last time that Tinder, for example, released this data, I note in the piece, the average user was spending an hour and a half a day on the app. Now, when you combine that, you know, when you compare that to sort of uh, usage for other types of apps like Facebook or Instagram or whatever, it's a really, really big number. Similarly, they log, I think the latest data they gave me, 1.6 billion swipes a day, and those lead to just 26 million matches. And when I started digging into that, okay, so what happens once once people have matched on the app? I, as a person who sort of met my husband before dating apps were a thing, was kind of shocked at how inefficient it was even at that point. There was this guy named Simon I talked to who was really, really interesting. He went into a long-term relationship in 2007, right before sort of apps hit the scene and came out of it in 2014 when he was around 30 and found that, you know, the, the very sort of landscape of sort of chatting somebody up in a bar seemed really different than it had when he'd gone into the relationship. It just seemed less acceptable because there was this other way that you were supposed to do things now. And so he gamely signed up for all the apps. And yet he found that this, you know, he, he described himself as not super, you know, physically attractive. He said, you know, I'm short, I'm balding, all of this. I'm funny. You know, I do I historically have done pretty well with the ladies because I'm funny, but I don't necessarily like look great on Tinder. And he found that even once he sort of had a match with somebody, he was he he was swiping right for every match he he made on Tinder. And then for everybody he matched with, he would send a text message and he would only hear back. He figured he was quite a numbers oriented guy. He only heard back from like one in 10 of these women, which means that essentially, you know, he's swiping right 300 times for everybody he has a text exchange with. So, I mean, you know, he kept with it because he's a dogged guy and he's now in a long-term relationship and he's really happy. But you can imagine somebody who doesn't have the sort of time or robustness to keep with it, just feeling really confused and rejected by that scenario. Yeah. And that's one of the, you just mentioned one of the downsides. It seems that these dating apps favor people who are attractive, right? Is that how it typically works out? Yeah, there's a fascinating study that came, there's a fascinating study that came out in August, I think, that, that sort of, where they took dating profiles, a large number of dating profiles and sort of managed to independently kind of rate the physical attractiveness of the people, which obviously is a tricky thing because people like different things, but be that as it may. And then they looked at sort of what types of, you know, how, how that correlated with people's matching or swiping behavior. And they found that the average user tends to swipe on people who are 25% more attractive than they are, which doesn't seem like a great recipe for success. And you have this sort of vision of like, you know, a man swiping right on a woman who's pretty hot and then she's swiping right on a guy who's really, really good looking and so forth. And none of them are actually connecting. <laughs> so but yeah, but that's one of the, and when you, when you take all your dating online and you're only judging based on physical appearance, like with this one guy, you miss out on 
the humor. The fact that he's so smart and funny. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, people can obviously, if, you know, if, if they push forward and engage in a texting relationship with the person, you know, they, 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 as Simon did, you know, get a chance to show off their, their wonderful sense of humor and some of their other qualities. But you don't get as many cues about a person as you do, you sort of in, in an in-person interaction. You just don't. But as you said, because dating has almost completely shifted to online with these apps, now if you want to go out and like approach someone in public, uh, in in meet space, as they say, like that's <laughs> that's now creepy because you're not supposed to do that. Well, that's what I heard in my interviews, and I have to say this is one of the things that really startled me. And there's no data to sort of you know establish how much this is the case, but it came up again and again and again. That people just felt, even especially people who are a little bit older, who are like maybe in their early 30s now, you've been at this for a while, that it had become less socially acceptable to talk to people, you know, spontaneously in person. I think that's interesting. It sort of suggests that maybe, maybe part of this is due to dating apps, you know, that's become sort of the acceptable way to meet people. And it's like, well, if that's what you're doing, go there. Another part of it may be phones. And I hate to blame phones for everything because it sort of seems really predictable. But it does seem to me that the way we sort of hang out in public spaces now when we're not busy is really different than it was. You know, I say in the piece that I met my husband on an elevator, but I haven't been on an elevator recently where people were just sort of having random chats with strangers. And do you, but do you get, as you talk to these people, do you get the sense that, okay, this is the way things are, but are people happy with it? Like, do they, would they like to be in a world where they could just chat up a stranger in public and, you know, possibly kick off a relationship from that? Well, this is such an interesting question. I mean, I do think there might be a little bit of romanticizing the past, right? Because I would sort of mention this experience, meeting my husband to people, sometimes as we were chatting about ways people met, people would often talk about the way their parents met and sort of sigh and say, I couldn't really meet the way that my parents met. And then when I said to them, well, here's how I met and what would happen if somebody started talking to you on an elevator, I'd get this kind of weird split screen response of like, oh my God, I would love that. And then if somebody did that, I would actually probably think they were weird. Now, I will say one of the lovely things about publishing this piece has been that I have heard some like wonderful kind of, you know, stories of people who in the recent past met people on elevators and trains and you know, all the rest of it. Um, so it, it certainly can be done. And I hope some people maybe will be inspired to go out and prove that I'm wrong. But yeah, it, it did seem that, you know, I heard more than I expected people saying, has it always been this hard? And I really wish that I, you know, a number of people just volunteered to me, like without any prompting, I wish I had met, you know, I wish I were dating before smartphones and apps. Yeah. And you continue on this idea of how social mores have changed, you know, rapidly. I mean, you cited a study that millennials are more likely to consider, you know, a guy asking a woman out to drinks as sexual harassment, as opposed to a baby boomer. They'd be like, well, that's just what, that's normal. Yeah. Yeah. No. So, I mean, this is, I found this number kind of stunning. I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's, it's close to 20% of people, I think in their twenties. So sort of younger millennials and Gen Z even think that a man asking a woman out for a drink is always or usually sexual harassment. And of course that means that, you know, 80 something percent don't think that, but the fact that that many people do is really stunning to me. And it's a much higher rate than with boomers or Gen Xers. And obviously, you know, work is a lot of where we spend our time. 
So if, if it really is not acceptable to, I mean, obviously I don't, I'm not supporting people hitting on their subordinates. There have been some, you know, really disturbing revelations in the wake of Me Too about people really taking advantage of workplace situations. But I think that that whole discussion has perhaps led to a real pause and people are not really sure what is and isn't acceptable. And that's confusing things further. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. This holiday season, treat yourself to higher quality underwear with Saks, the underwear that puts all other pairs to shame. Saks is the only men's underwear that's actually designed with our anatomy in mind. Their patented ballpark pouch has these three internal mesh panels that keeps everything in place. No more friction, no more having to adjust yourself. Everything is just super comfortable. This comes in especially handy during those hot and humid summers when that becomes a problem. The kinetic boxer briefs might go to for that. Also, their fabrics are super soft, breathable, and moisture wicking, repelling BO and keeping you fresh. Once you try Sacks, you won't want to go back to wearing the old stuff. And I've got a special offer for you. Shop from anywhere on SaxUnderwear.com and get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase when you use promo code AOM at checkout. Sacks is a great holiday gift for you or someone else. So order today at SaxUnderwear.com. S A X X Underwear.com. That's Sacks with two X's. And use promo code AOM at checkout to get $5 off plus free shipping on your first purchase. One more time, SaxUnderwear.com. Promo code AOM. Also buy Squarespace. Take it from me someone who's built lots of websites. If you don't know how to code and you try to make a website, it's going to be hard. I've done that. I broke my site over and over again. It's not fun. Other option is hire a designer, but you know you need a lot of capital to do that oftentimes. Squarespace allows you to get a great looking website up in a few minutes and you can customize it however you want with just a click of your mouse. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more, Squarespace is the tool for you. They've got beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything. They've got e-commerce functionality, let you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box. and There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains is simple and you'll get help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, even restaurants and gyms to turn great ideas into something real. If you'd like to try this out, head over to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. As you were talking to these uh, people you interviewed for the story, you know, and they're talking about the dating apps. Like, it sounds like they weren't happy. A lot of them weren't happy with it, but why did they keep using them? Like, what did they say? It's like, well, is this like, it's because that's the only thing they had? I mean, what, what was going on there? One of the fascinating things was how many people I talked to who were using the apps, even though they weren't actually interested in meeting somebody. I thought that was really interesting. So where the, where it was almost just like one more, it was almost a game. It was a, there's a woman who I call Iris in the piece who first said this to me. She said, it's been gamified. And I didn't really get what she meant by that at first. And then I kept hearing the same thing again and again and again from people who would say, yeah, I'll download the app when I'm bored watching TV sort of a diversion. And that helps to explain sort of how we could get to a situation like the one that the that's the guy I call Simon experienced where he's having to swipe right for 300 times for a single text exchange, which is that people are just sort of idly doing it. It's maybe a quick kind of dopamine hit, ego boost to see if somebody will swipe right back on you. It makes you feel good temporarily. You know, one woman I talked to described it as like a bubble popping game. So it, it does seem to be, you know, obviously for a lot of people, it is a way to meet people in real life, but for other people, it's it's more of a diversion. So they're using it like Instagram. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So another factor that came up in your research as you delved into this is about the role of porn and masturbation. And that's been increasing even in the past, like what, 20 years. So what effects are that having? Well, so this is, 
Yeah. So this is interesting. So the, the data we have suggests that the number of people who say that they've masturbated in the last week has doubled since the early 90s to a bit over 50% of men and a more, a little bit, it tripled for women, uh, I should say, a, to a bit over a quarter. Now, many people after I published the piece sort of said, that's BS. Like everybody masturbates. The people who still don't say that they're doing it are lying. I can't really speak to that, but it is interesting that the percentage of people who admit doing it, who say that they do it has gone up so much. And part of that may be due to sort of decreasing social stigma. One of the things that I was really interested in as I was digging into all of this was just how stigmatized masturbation was through much of the 20th century. That isn't something I'd really focused on, but it really came up in my reading. So, but, but, but let's assume that it has doubled, you know, that, that doubling, you know, is, is partially due to probably decreased taboos. It's absolutely obviously got to do with the availability of digital porn for women. It seems to have something to do also with the availability of vibrators. One fairly recent study found that half of women have used them, which we don't have a baseline for, but every researcher I spoke to thinks is undoubtedly a big increase from the past. And as I say in the piece, Amazon has something like 10,000 different models available. So that's a big factor too. But then the question becomes, is this substituting for sex or is it like its whole own occupation? And for different people, the answer is probably different. And this turns out to be a really hard question to get at in research because guess what? People who have higher sex drives use porn more and masturbate more, and they also tend to have sex more. So it's very hard to sort of tease out, you know, cause and effect. So yeah, but like, I think you talked about, you know, the the use of porn or young people, particularly learning about sex through porn is making sex kind of weird and like uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I guess backing up just a little bit on the porn question, there's been so much attention. I don't know whether you've talked about this at all on your podcast to, to sort of, there's this whole sort of anti-masturbation movement playing out in various no groups. Fat. Yeah, no fap, fight the new drug is one that's more porn oriented, but obviously the two are connected. The, the sort of far right proud boys group has a sort of what they call no winking policy. This is, this is really become sort of over a short period of time, sort of a big movement. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that many of the things that, that are asserted seem to be controversial. You know, for example, the notion that porn is addictive, that's really controversial and the scientific evidence is pretty mixed. But there is some research that suggests that thinking that porn and masturbation are bad for you tends to be the biggest predictor of whether you're, you know, sexually dysfunctional, which I thought was really fascinating. It's this idea that like, if you believe that it's bad for you, whether because of your religious beliefs or some other similar set of beliefs, that tends to be almost self-fulfilling. I thought that was really interesting. And then I think there is a separate set of questions apart from whether or not porn or masturbation are substituting from sex, which goes to what you just said, which is what happens when you learn, when you have sort of on-demand access to a really wide variety of porn starting at a really early age before you've experienced the real thing, how does that change the way you approach sexual relationships? And how has it been changing sexual relationships based on your conversations? So there's, yeah, based on my conversations I heard from a lot of, so it was interesting, conversations with men tended to sort of say my porn life and my sex life are different things. They're not related, which I thought was a good and interesting self-aware point. And yet in my conversations with women, some other themes emerged, which is, you know, I've been with a couple of people, dated a couple of people. I have had sexual relationships with them. And there were things that happened that 
I really wasn't cool with. And I later discovered as a sort of not heavy porn user that the things that happen to me are sort of really common in, in a lot of porn, mainstream and otherwise. So the maybe most common example of this is choking. A lot of younger women said that they'd had people try choking them without asking and sort of unexpectedly and found this really traumatic and choking has become, you know, really common in porn and some people do enjoy it in real life, but it's really, really, really not something you should spring on somebody. And I think that if, you know, you're a young woman and you're sexually inexperienced and you're with a young man and he's sexually inexperienced and he thinks that that's like a normal and expected thing to do, like that's going to possibly scare both of you off. <laughs> right. So okay, this is what you do. Okay. I saw this. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's talk about another factor that you explored in the article is this rise of anxiety and depression amongst young people. Is that inhibiting people from having relationships or is the lack of relationships making people more depressed? Oh, such a good question. And I really think that is, this is sort of a vicious circle or vicious cycle. So we do know that depression and anxiety, both of which seem to be by some measures really rising among young people are for for almost everybody, libido killers. We also know that the drugs used to treat those conditions are libido killers, which is really sort of a cruel irony. We also know that having a happy, healthy sex life seems to be a, a, a booster of happiness and healthiness. You know, having sex at least once a week is is tied to a whole bunch of really you know, positive outcomes in terms of well-being. So, you know, it, it, there is a bit of a chicken and the egg problem here, as you say. And it's and it's also going back to this idea. It's not just about sex, but it's like relationships, just like human relationships. Young people seem to be having a problem with this. Yeah, well, I, I think perhaps you know, in the data suggested, some older people are having a problem as well. But it, you know, it, it can become. I mean, going back to the question of you know, is it a good thing or a bad thing that teens aren't doing this? And you know, yes, maybe it's a good thing, but then maybe some of the causes of it are a bad thing because I think that you know, once you get to a certain age in your twenties and you haven't had any experience with flirtation, rejection heartbreak, all of those other things, it can be a pretty overwhelming time to sort of start to figure all of that out. And I guess, you know, I do think that the sort of relationship experimentation part of this is really crucial. Like getting your heart broken when you're in high school and there's a roof over your head and someone's going to make sure you eat dinner is a little bit easier, I think, to hack than when you're 25. Right. When you're trying to graduate college or get your first job. Yeah. 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 And what's interesting, you, you highlight throughout this book, is this sort of weird paradox that's going on, not the book, but the article. Um, this paradox that's going on is that this you know, young generation considers itself very progressive, very open, very tolerant. Yet at the same time, they, they can, these young people are also becoming increasingly prudish. Like we, so there's like this openness about sex, there's all these apps and there's porn and all this stuff going on. But at the same time, there's this lack of emotion, you know, intimacy. Intimacy, yeah, yeah. And I think prudishness is prudishness is not the wrong word, perhaps, to some extent. I mean, I think, look, there's a lot of research suggesting that heavy social media use is, is tied to sort of poor self-image and predicts poor body image and all the rest of that. 
And this sort of coincides with this sort of generational thing a lot of people have noticed. When people started mentioning this to me as, as I was embarking on this project, I kind of didn't take it that seriously, but it kept coming up, which is that people sort of pointed out that young people in gyms don't want to be naked in front of other people as much as they did in the past. And I was like, really? Like, I work out at home. I don't go to a gym. I don't know if this is true, but it kept coming up. And, you know, I think that people, you know, some of that may be sort of not wanting to have your photograph taken, like that might be like a smartphone thing. But some of it, I think, actually is sort of increased sort of discomfort with nudity, which is really interesting and kind of counterintuitive. Because as you say, there's, you know, all this, the culture has never been sort of more permissive or, or, or really super hypersexualized in one way. Yeah, I, mean, I thought that was interesting. Because, I mean, you hear people talk about that on social media. It's like, oh, the old guy at the gym just got naked. <laughs> And exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there were. That, that, I, I heard from a few people like old guys, <laughs> old guys at the gym. You know, have no problem letting it all hang out. And and it's, it, maybe there's something to that. I mean, look. You know, before the '90s, I went to high school in the mid '90s, and, and up until about that point, shortly before I was in high school, most people, you know, had to shower after gym class, and then that changed for a variety of reasons involving liability and concern about molestation and a whole bunch of other stuff. And so now people actually just have less, you know, experience being naked and, and you know, uh, unembarrassed in front of other people. Like maybe that's, maybe that's part of this. And I also think there's this sort of interesting question sort of that dovetails off of what you just said about whether, you know, does something become less interesting or alluring when it's no longer forbidden? You know, like if we, if you can sort of download or access, you know, any kind of, you know, you know, sexual content you want, does it kind of, does it, does it lose, does the real thing lose some of its allure? I can't speak to that, but it's an interesting question. Yeah. I mean, it seems like, you know, all the sex, but we seem like it lives, we live like in a really unsexy time, even though there's sex all around us. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like watch those old movies from like the forties and fifties and there's all this like tension and like pretense and they don't actually say it, but it's like innuendo and and it's like, that's, it's kind of, that's lights a fire to get sex. But now it's just like, meh. All there. Right, all exactly. I, right, and people are people are sexting. I mean, which is, is is a bit of a puzzle, right? Like, how can it be that like people if people are so prudish? But I guess you have a lot of control over that image of yourself, right? You know, if you're if you're taking a picture of yourself that's flattering and that you're comfortable with, you're doing it on your own terms. That's one thing. But in reality, like sex with another person, even another person you know well, is like you know is messy and potentially awkward. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the opposite of, you know, a, a controlled environment. Yeah. That's another thing. I'm kind of this larger trend. I think young people, they, I feel like they want more control. Like, and they're, they're afraid of the awkwardness of relationships, not just sex, but like romantic relationships, or even friendships, because it's so, you don't have any control over it. Right. And it's awkward. And like all these apps and all these things that we've social media, it allows you to control. But when you get that control, like you lose something in the process. I think that is such a key point. I mean, that, that honestly is one of the things that came up when I tried to sort of, you know, push people on. Well, so you're, you're texting with guys on apps, but then you're not meeting up with them in real life. And I did hear variations of like, well, that, you know, texting with somebody is controlled, right? Like I have time to think about how to respond. I'm not put on the spot. That word awkwardness kept coming up again and again. It's less awkward. Another word that came up several times was ambiguity. There's less ambiguity. So even though I may not like apps very well, I like the fact that by opting into them, we both know that we're sort of potentially interested in each other. There's none of that sort of confusion that there was, say, when I met my husband. I mean, when I first, when I think I'm 
say this in the piece, but when I sort of first met up with him for drinks outside the office, actually he'd stopped working in the in, in the in the building at that point where I met him on the elevator. But it was like, are we? Is this a date? Is this not a date? I don't know. And a lot of people just sort of said they found that type of you know uncertainty so stressful. You know that it just they couldn't handle it almost. But but isn't that what makes like romantic relationships exciting? Like the tension. Exactly, it's like the roller coaster of it, right? The up, the down. Does she like me? Does she not like me? Yeah. <laughs> like Jane, that's all the Jane Austen novels are about. Is does he like me? What are yeah. feelings for me? Like I don't know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's it can be exhilarating. I mean, it can also be you know uh, queasiness inducing. Right. But go together. Yeah, they go together. I mean, so we've been talking about the personal effects of this. I mean, it can lead to depression. People are feeling more lonely, et cetera. But what are some of the social and even political implications of this sex recession? Yeah. So this, you know, when I started working on the piece, I thought that this would be more what I spent more of my time on sort of looking at whether this is tied to the decreasing fertility rate in this country. Over the past 10 years, the, the birth rate has gone down quite sharply. It hit a historic low for the second time in a second year in a row recently um, having been above you know above two children per women as recently as just before the great recession and you know clearly this is somewhat connected to that you know sex and babies aren't the same thing but they have obviously have something to do with each other so that that's sort of one question I tend to think you know perhaps some of the things that may be making dating more complicated for people in their 20s that we've talked about feeling not ready to to start to you know not financially sort of steady enough to to be pursuing kind of long term partnership and family are part of this. Another part of this, of course, you know, at, at, which really became a, a national issue after I started working on the piece is sort of what are the political consequences of people feeling like they can't find a partner? Like, is there something about that that's sort of destabilizing? And of course, you know, there have been all of these really awful shootings, you know, where so-called self-described incels say that their inability to to get a woman has, you know, fueled rage and even violence. And, you know, it, this isn't to say that, that that their grievances are legitimate. They're not. But it is interesting that, you know, we can look for examples around the world and through history, like when there are lots of untouched young people, that tends to be socially destabilizing. I mean, the other concern with a lot of countries too, particularly Western democracies that have robust welfare states, is that the welfare state depends upon people having babies, right? Right, 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 right. I mean, some I, I wouldn't say this, but some people sort of say, you know, yeah, social security, all these things are sort of a Ponzi scheme. You have to have more people paying into them for them to pay out eventually or, or to keep paying out. And so, yeah, the, the sort of fiscal implications of this certainly are are real. You know, I, I'm more worried, though, about sort of what this tells us in the here and now about the people who are here already. You know, I, it seems to me that if there's some set of conditions that are making human connection and intimacy in the here and now among people who are already here more fraught and more Elusive, that should that should be concerning to everybody. So it seems like a lot of people, based on the article here, are unhappy with the state of the you know the, the dating scene or the relationship scene. Um, but they like the same patterns keep perpetuating. Like, mm -hmm. and it seems like you know people keep acting in a way that's contrary to the actual desires. Like, what do you think is going on there? What are the obstacles that stand in the way of people you know doing something different that's not you know the th different the thing that's not working? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, going back to the anxiety, you know, the, the more you become unaccustomed to doing something, the more nerve wracking it is. One woman I talked to who I call Anna in the piece 
talked about how, you know, she kept using the apps, even though they weren't really working that wonderfully for her, because the more she did it, the harder it was to talk to people in real life. So I think part of the answer to this is to just sort of, if, if you are unhappy, you know, twofold, realize that you are not alone. I think that's key. I think that feeling that you're alone or weird is really sort of self-fulfilling. And, and, and clearly a lot of people are struggling with the ways in which the world has changed very quickly in a very short period of time. So, so to, to sort of take some comfort in that, know that other people aren't happy with this either. And, you know, if Instagram is making you feel bad, get off of it. Go exercise, sleep, take care of yourself and, you know, make, take, take the hour and a half a day that you're spending on Tinder, you know, to go out and, and do something that, that makes you happy. And perhaps that will also, you know, connect you with other people. Yeah. Typically is the best dating advice. Do something you find you enjoy. Cause you usually end up doing that with someone that also enjoys that thing. And that can be the kickstarter of a relationship. Exactly. Well, this is the kind of article, it's super fascinating. And I feel like there's a lot more that can be said about it. Is this something that you can see turning into a book in the future? I've been thinking about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not sure. I wouldn't want to just sort of dilate what's already here. I'd want to do something that that sort of was original. But I think there is just clearly a, a lot of people are eager to read about this topic. And I'm I find it fascinating. So with any luck, <clears throat> I will I will find a way to sort of continue in this vein. Okay. Is there some place people can go to learn more about the article and your work? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Kate Julian, K-A-T-E-J-U-L-I-A-N. And the article is on the Atlantic's website and it's called The Sex Recession. It has. Well, Kate Julian, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. My guest today was Kate Julian. She is a senior editor at The Atlantic, and she's the author of the piece, The Sex Recession. You can find that on theatlantic.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash sexrecession, where you can find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.